Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Crux of the Story. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of public relations at the Boston University College of Communication. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Fernandez, Chief Communications Officer at Enbridge. Hello, Mike. You're in cold Calgary this morning, right? I am. We had one day last week that uh, I awakened to minus 29 wow. Fahrenheit. Wow. Well, I'm glad you survived it. We're getting our real first, I guess, snowstorm here in Boston this morning. But Boston University never cancels classes. It's, one. It's I guess, a, a cardinal rule. They party are very stock. hardy here at Boston University. Okay, let's get to our, our discussion. We've got a great one today. Two weeks ago on The Crux, we took a look at the practical aspects of generative AI, how to put it to use, its strengths, its limitations, with authors David Boyle and Richard Bowman, who've written a, a terrific book on this subject. Today, our guest will help us step back and understand the ethics of using generative AI, particularly in an academic setting. Dr. Wesley J. Wildman is a professor in computing and data sciences at Boston University and professor of philosophy, theology, and ethics in the School of Theology. He is a philosopher and ethicist specializing in understanding complex human social systems and using computational and data science methods such as simulation, machine learning, and network analysis to study the seemingly intractable problems that arise within those systems. I guess the easiest way to describe his work is that he focuses on the scientific study of religion using computing and data science methods. Professor Wildman joins us today to discuss the ethics of ChatGPT and other forms of generative AI and the use of the chatbot in academic settings, including by students. Wesley, welcome to the crux of the story. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Great to be with you, Gary, Mike. Well, let's uh, start with sort of a basic question. I hope you don't mind it, but I'm sure it's on the minds of our listeners. Why is a professor in the School of Theology talking and writing about generative AI? That's a fair question. There's a bit of a history to it. When I first started at university, I took a degree in mathematics, physics, and computing science, and uh, started working on a computer business, which was the, the first of the uh, international uh, word processors. So my job was to build fonts for that word processor. At the time, there weren't programs to build fonts. So I also had to write the programs to build the fonts. I was uh, getting a start that way it meant that when later I changed to do philosophy of religion, I uh, found myself itching to integrate the various parts of my life. And once I had the PhD in philosophy of religion, I found that there's a field called the scientific study of religion. And my particular take on the scientific study of religion tended to be using computational and data science methods just because of my background. That's how I wound up here. 
Cool. So, so Wesley, welcome to the crux. Um, I understand from BU Today, essentially, that's the university's daily newsletter, uh, recently featured the work that you and your students have been doing in your data society and ethics class. Uh, the class came up with, I think it's the first ever blueprint for academic use of chat GPT and similar artificial intelligence models uh, that you called the generative AI assistance policy. What inspired you to do this project with your class and what are the guiding principles of the blueprint you've arrived at? The inspiration was the incredible power of ChatGPT to generate something that looks like class assignments. So from my perspective as a teacher... So you're saying was, it made it easy. There <laughs> was a real pressure to come up with something. And I wasn't prepared just to sit there and leave these kids in the morally questionable situation of trying to decide how to use this technology. Uh -huh. uh, that's not fair on them. We need to be really clear about our expectations. Yeah. And we don't want to leave them in the lurch in that regard. So I had something else planned for the day we did this, but uh, it occurred to me this would be a lot better use of our time. So we jumped. That's in. great. The way we did it involved uh, people in groups coming up with their own policies. And then the teaching assistants wrote up on the wall in the new the new Center for Computing and Data Sciences, the classrooms have walls of whiteboards. So they wrote up on the wall all of the different policies that the students came up with. And then we started talking about the policies, what really wasn't feasible. A few people wanted to ban it. A few people wanted no limits, but most people wanted something in between. And it became really clear what they most cared about. They really didn't want to compromise their skill set. They cared oh. about being able to think, they cared about being able to write. But at the same time, they, they didn't want to be unrealistic about the fact that these GPTs aren't going anywhere. AI generated language is going to be with us forever now. We're never going to forget as a species how to do this. And this is just the thin end of a very thick wedge related to AI technologies. So they wanted to know how to make use of it to increase their skill set without allowing it to damage their skill sets. And so we worked on that, came up with a policy and then had to push back several times with one another. They wanted to convince me, for example, that they were worried about cheating because they're all angling for jobs in the tech industry and they really mm -hmm. cared about that. So we had to be f super clear about how we were going to handle things. And uh, yeah, in the end, we reached uh, complete unanimity on the document oh. and we shared it fairly broadly. and. We're actually using it for grading. Oh, cool. So, so, so it's something that's shareable. Have, have you thought about sharing it uh, with others in academia? Yeah, the way that's worked so far is that it's been made available through BU Today. If, if you found the yep, yep. article on BU Today covering that, you would see a sidebar linking to the policy. Uh, it's also been shared within the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences, which is the home of this class that I was teaching, that I am teaching. And in that context, the, the committee, faculty committee group that's responsible for figuring out things related to courses and so on, has agreed that it's a policy that they can recommend to the faculty without any adjustments. They feel it's the right type of policy for them. So it's having an effect 
more broadly. And I know it's been discussed uh, with some other deans as well. So I'm not sure where the university will come down. Let me just say something about that. Um, what I've been told so far is that the university is inclined to handle AI text generation under the heading of plagiarism, which isn't too bad a way to do it, you might think. They, maybe we don't need to think too much about it. If it's plagiarism, it's plagiarism. But there are several problems with that. The first is that you can get false positives when you run these. Run, right. The more wooden someone's prose is, the more likely they're going to get flagged for um, for having used AI to generate it. It's a probabilistic judgment, but it really complicates the question of plagiarism. The second type of problem is that the, um, the sorts of ways that we can use generative AI is in a, the same ways that we would use conversation with other human beings. So we would encourage our students to sit down and chat with each other to get their heads clear about a topic before they start writing a paper. Is it okay for them to do that with ChatGPT? And we would encourage students to do web searches and get, get a feel for the landscape of a problem before they start writing. ChatGPT is superb at doing that too. Should we penalize them for doing that? So trying to treat this under the heading of a plagiarism statute is really not a long-term solution to the problem. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be also difficult. I mean, if two students queried at the same time the same question, it would seem like they'd likely get the same response. Not in chat TPT. No, that you get a different response uh, each time you query. So they, uh, it's not possible to replicate the conditions under which someone got a particular response. Huh. So as, as as you know, I mean, the reaction to GPT, uh, the idea of generative AI uh, more broadly has conjured up a full range of responses uh, across the globe. But you frame this technology as akin to the printing press in terms of the impact it's likely to have on the way we think and teach each other. Uh, could you walk us through the analogy? Yeah, and the cognitive scientists talk about this thing called extended cognition. It's the way we use objects outside of our body to help us think. So we pile up rocks to help us remember to do things or we use an abacus or whatever. We use all sorts of things to help us extend our cognitive power, memory, calculation, uh, direction, guidance, all sorts of things. So uh, before the invention of writing, there were a lot of ways to learn to think but a lot of them used extended cognition, uh, especially body movement, dancing, music, stories to help people navigate their environment, figure out how to move across long distances, understand the plants and animals around them so that they could be safe. Extended cognition's always been a thing for us as a species. When people invented writing, it launched extended cognition in a new direction. It extended people's memory and their analytical abilities tremendously, but that was only available for elites. So elites could learn to think through writing in a really novel and profoundly important way. That gave rise to massive traditions of learning and ancient universities that was transformative. Now the printing press, which by the way was first invented in China and Korea long before it was in the West, but in the West, when it was invented, it took off and that made it possible for literacy to spread to everyone. Now, not just elites, but everyone was learning to think 
through the mode of writing, reading and writing. Mm -hmm. and our educational system is now deeply committed to that. What ChatGPT is doing is showing us that we cannot depend on writing to teach students how to think reliably anymore. We have to use writing, but we can't depend solely on writing. So I see it as a transformation in the educational industry as about the, the same scale as what the printing press did over a couple of centuries. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Briefly, it's a critically affirmative approach to using AI in text generation. It's eliminating it for certain purposes, such as in-class exams, unless those exams explicitly focus on using, say, ChatGPT or another GPT. Uh, and then it has this uh, important concept of using ChatGPT and acknowledging it, not just by citing it, but by including an appendix that says how you used it and why you used it and surfaces the parts of the responses you got that were critical for your own thinking. And students get rewarded for pushing back against ChatGPT, for finding something wrong with what ChatGPT said, for expanding mm -hmm. the the categories that it offered by adding something new or something like that. So someone using ChatGPT can get the same type of score as someone who didn't, so long as they um, do something creative or novel in relation to it. And finally, it critically involves using uh, GPT-0 or another detector. They aren't going to work for much longer, but they are working somewhat well at the moment, just to make sure that students know that everything they submit will go through that, and they're encouraged to do that themselves before they submit, in the same way that you do an originality check to handle plagiarism problems. That's fascinating. I mean, really, really fascinating. And um, you had mentioned previously, which I thought was really um, smart, the idea of not putting it under the umbrella of plagiarism in an academic sort of policy setting. But I, but I have to ask you, um, as a philosopher, theologian, and ethics professor, do you have any core concerns, Wesley, about this technology, generative AI, in terms of impact uh, in the field, either from the topic we're just discussing, um, the originality and of creation and plagiarism, or uh, the field that you've studied for so long, uh, theology, ethics, etc.? Yeah, complicated question there. To, yeah. to answer it, I think we need to uh, break out of just thinking about AI text generation and think mm -hmm. about generative AI more generally. So not just text, but also images and audio. Uh, in, in this context, we're seeing things that are incredibly disruptive economically. So naturally, as an ethicist, I'm deeply concerned about the disruption to people, particularly vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the technological changes that have come up 
in our cultures in the modern period have affected the most vulnerable people and the people who are the most well off have been able to protect themselves fairly well. What's fascinating about this particular change is that it strikes sort of more or less in the middle of the hierarchy of economics. Universities, for example, have been able to smile and watch as people's economic prospects have been turned upside down by new technologies and safely analyze them from their ivory towers. But this is reaching all the way into the university and getting the university <laughs> to think about what do they mean by educating people? What do they mean by teaching people how to think? So I rather like that disruption of the comfort of the academy, considering everyone else has been carrying the load uh, for many, many decades now <laughs> of technological advances. Now, that's just as, a, as an ethics professor. Uh, uh, as an educator, what I'm most worried about is a kind of stodgy approach to new technology that's going to trap students in uh, a mire of guilt and the inability to learn what they need to learn in order to function with new technologies. That's just a stupid way to educate. Yeah. We need to think really clearly about what our goals are as educators. And if, if our goals are clear, we need to be secondarily clear about how we're supposed to get there. Something like ChatGPT or DALI or other generative AI tools should be able to help people learn if you think about how to do it right. So uh, stodgy educators who, who, who don't rethink what they're trying to achieve are going to cause problems. They're going to get in the way. And we saw that with uh, scientific calculators and slide rules. There were teachers resisting all of that stuff as well. That needs to end. And then finally, in my own field, you asked about that. Uh, the book Spirit Tech talks about a number of ways in which uh, generative AI is affecting spirituality and religious practice, particularly in helping people learn how to meditate faster, uh, in creating VR environments. I mean, the, the Vatican recently authorized a chatbot to give official confessions uh, so that people online <laughs> could go through confession without having to find a priest. Hmm. And that you've got AIs who are giving teachings in Buddhist sanghas and every, uh, everywhere you can point at, uh, you can see religion responding by this with a sort of tentative embrace of generative AI. And that is going to continue. So last little story. I've got a bet with one of my students going at the moment. This is a generative AI and religion bet. I'm betting that a conservative evangelical pastor is going to have a conversation with a trained GPT, trained on the Bible and on Jesus, as if it were Jesus. You can have a conversation uh -huh. in, oh, wow. church, in church officially, and I'm saying it's going to happen before the end of 2024. And my students are profoundly skeptical. They say it's definitely going to happen this calendar year before the end of 2024. <laughs> I'm really, really worried I'm going to lose, lose the bet for this. If I was a betting man, I might be with the students on that one, Wesley. <laughs> now, I'm aware that this could be dangerous, asking a religion and ethics professor this question. But here we go. How do you think about the role of the creator or creators of open AI? Right. I mean, I've only recently learned, for instance, that Elon Musk is one of the founders of OpenAI. Does that change the way you think about OpenAI or chat 
GPT? And how do you think the personality profile and motivations of, of the founders impacts these tools and their integrity? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of that stuff related to personality, motivations and so on is behind the scenes. It's difficult to tell what's really going on. Uh, but if it hadn't been OpenAI, it would have been another group. Google had its own separate parallel process going on and people have got GPTs working in companions, companion robots for the elderly in Japan. I mean, it, it, it's coming anyway. It doesn't really matter who does it. What's interesting about Elon Musk and his relationship to OpenAI, though, is the reason why he pulled out. He started it with an exciting, enthusiastic embrace of the concept of open source software and a nonprofit that could make this stuff available for everyone. But in the long run, what happened is that OpenAI changed its policy about open source and became a hybrid for-profit and non-profit group. And Musk withdrew at that point. So there's a very interesting concept there about whether or not it's safe to allow the learning model, the language model behind GPT-3 and 3.5 in ChatGPT and GPT-4 in Bing Chat whether those learning models should be made available to the general public. Now, certainly they should be available to auditors, official auditors withstanding to investigate them, but do we really want these learning models freely available to people in the general public, which does include people with malicious intent mm -hmm. and a lot of people who just want to have fun and cause trouble and may not want to hurt anyone, but could easily wind up hurting people. So I have some sympathy with OpenAI's decision to cork up their code and not let it out. I'm not sure that's the reason why they did it. I, I'm not absolutely certain about that, but I'm pretty confident that would have played into that decision. Interesting. So, Wesley, you write and lecture on the ethical implications of AI decision making, and AI is making more and more decisions that impact human lives. What ethical principles should guide those decisions and who should be responsible for ensuring that those principles are upheld and how will AI impact human decision making and autonomy going forward? Hmm. Well, Mike, you've just asked the ultimate policy question and <laughs> the honest truth here is that no one really knows the answer to that question. No one knows how to manage this technology. Hmm. It's very complicated because it's changing so rapidly and assumptions that go into the formulation of a policy at one moment could be obsolete even a year later with some new version. For example, ChatGPT is based on GPT 3.5, a large language model built using a deep learning neural network with human reinforcement. It's it's really impressive, but that particular version stopped learning on web-based material as of the end of 2021. GPT-4, which is in Bing Chat, is updating itself all the time, incorporating new information. So if you thought it was safe to formulate policy based on something that had to have an end date for uh, how it could be trained, uh, that just disappeared like six months later. That whole concept was just out the window. In the same way, the, the concept of just focusing on text generation and trying to legislate around that is not going to help with the integration of 
text generation into uh, visual expressions of human beings or other beings who can speak as fluently as you or I can when we're talking. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, super complicated trying to figure out how to do this. So what matters? I just, I don't think the criteria for human well-being and social justice change much here. Mm -hmm. I think they're the same as they've always been. And that means that you have to worry about vulnerable people and think especially about what our moral obligations are to them. It means we have to think about distributive justice, making sure that we have equality or at least equity in the various contexts in which that kind of thing matters. Um, if people are affected, made vulnerable by this technology such that jobs are no longer available to them, as they were before, like screenwriters look like they could easily be out of a job. Publishers are trying to figure out are they ever going to publish books written by AI. Right. I'm a publisher on the side, and that's one of the things I worry about. Am I going to publish books like that? So that these these sorts of things mean that there are a lot of people who are going to be out of work, and the question is, what are they going to do instead? And so there needs to be agility in our economic thinking and our policy deliberation so that we can take account of those changes. I suspect generative AI will produce a transformation about on the scale of the industrial revolution in terms of wow. disrupting a host of different industries and causing people to have to rethink who they are, what they do, have to retrain. Fortunately, the capacity for long distance work, working remotely, is going to make it a lot easier for people to adapt to a new environment so long as they can get training. So it's only a half answer to your question, Mike. I think that's yeah. a really deep question and I wish there was a better answer. But we're going to have to struggle a bit to figure out how to regulate all of this. It's, it's really fascinating and I'll, I'll provide a, a simplistic example that aligns with what you've just said, Wesley, which is I'm a runner. I run every day and I have a trainer, someone who trains me, sends me based on my age and a number of other factors, a, a workout every day. Here's what you should be doing, anaerobic, you know, that kind of thing. Well, now my watch does the same thing. My watch will see what I've done over the past week and suggest a very detailed run for the day based on who I am and what have I, I've been doing. And I, it never occurred to me until about a few days ago. And I said, hmm, I, this, this has the potential to put my trainer out of work. And, yeah. and the, what I'm getting over the watch is really good. It's really good. Gary, that's so, a brilliant example. Let's have a look at another one. Think about your local therapist that you go to for psychotherapy. Right. Or marriage counselling, or things like that. Uh, these GPTs are being used, uh, trained to function in that way with people. Uh, they are affordable. Uh, they once trained, they're pretty good at giving advice. They don't get emotionally tangled with their clients. They're very good at the relational tangles of human beings. They might not be uh, as responsive as they need be to extreme situations, but the general direction of their advice is pretty reliable. And so it's, it's quite likely that people will turn to confidential, non-human relationships in order to solve these problems uh, that they have, whatever their life problems might be, their relationship problems. So therapists might be out of a business. Well, and the other day in, in the data science course I'm teaching at the moment in the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences, 
we were talking about the justice system and how it would be affected by generative AI. And the students were brainstorming domains of the justice system where this might happen. And we came up with about a dozen different domains where it might happen. And generative AI has been tried out in some of them, but uh, one of them hasn't been tried, but really could be. And that's the, the situation of the overworked public defender who constantly mm -hmm. finds himself in court defending someone they just met, knowing almost nothing about the case. And with all the goodwill and all the high skill in the world, that public defender can never be ready to handle this particular case. But I can easily imagine uh, a generative AI solution to that, which would produce at least help for the public defender, if not better representation than they could get from a public defender and people might actually opt for that rather than an overworked public defender. So even the legal tradition, legal business, legal industry could be affected by that. Anyway, it's on and on and on. It's you fascinating. Well, as a lifelong Catholic, I'm, I'm right when we're done here, I'm going to go to that Vatican <laughs> and confess some of the things that I've done. Uh, that... Gary, Gary if, you're, if you're a lifelong Catholic, you'll especially appreciate the way this is being done in some European cities. That chatbot is being implanted in something that looks a little bit like a mini caravan or a, something. And it's <laughs> oh, wow. in a city street and then you, you, you wait your turn and when, it, when the little booth is available, you, the person comes out and you go in and you sit down and kneel and you do confession with the chatbot and then uh, you get your penance or whatever and then you walk out again and it's just sitting there in a city street instead of having to deal with a, a priest with whom you might have serious trust issues given the way uh, yes. ordained clergy people have been uh, demonstrated <laughs> to have been paid so you don't need to worry about that and so this is the roman catholic church uh, adapting to new technology in what I think is a fairly impressive way. Yeah, and it's sometimes it's hard to find a priest, um, given especially if the, you're a long way away from living exactly. in the somewhere. Yeah. So, so uh, Wesley, you had mentioned your book Spirit Tech, and I want to come back to it. You co-authored that with Kate Stockley, um, and it's fascinating uh, because much like your work, you, you bring the world of science to uh, and technology to religion. Um, you put these subjects in conversation, the oldest of subjects meeting the newest, speaking of religion. Um, we don't need to think of these spaces as connected and in conversation, but could you share with us how you think about religious traditions and how they provide ethical frameworks for AI, just to extend the conversation we're, we're having? Do you think of those traditions as important, for example, to government oversight of AI? Hmm. We've got a lot of work to do on the government policy side of AI, but religion contributes two things to that. The first is religions tend to have some type of social ethics operating, which is more or less revolutionary. For example, in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets often speak as if nations are to be judged by the fate of their most vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting social ethics approach, certainly not one that's very common in the United States as on the right of politics anyway. Um, if, something, if someone's vulnerable, it's their own fault. They need to sort it out and figure it out, more or less. <clears throat> that's, that's a very interesting perspective to bring to the table, and it comes from religion. 
Another perspective that comes from religion is virtue, which is to say, we don't know how to solve policy questions. That's too complicated. What we do know is the kind of person that we need to be. Loving, forgiving, wise, insightful, diligent, hardworking, and so on. Those virtues then are the things that we should be cultivating so that no matter what kinds of trouble get thrown at us by the world, including by generative AI or the next wave of technologies, we'll be ready because we'll have the right kind of character to be able to see it through. Uh, those two contributions don't add up to a policy. For that, you need government and policy experts and so on. But they do constrain policies by introducing principles and character that should be taken account of when we think about how to live as people. Interesting. You know, we talk about, and you know, Mike and I come out of the business world, we talk a lot about values, company values, and and how those align with broader social values. And so I think what you're talking about translates to big enterprises as well, Wesley. Well, it could. But in fact, uh, big enterprises, uh, if you talk to the student, the, the people who work in them, they, they often report being at the mercy of the profit motive, which trickles all the way down yep. to their job, sitting in a research group, developing an app or something. And they have to keep that client happy and they have to serve the profit motive of the corporation and it can feel killing to them it can feel devastating as a as a form of life so there are other kinds of corporations who are trying to do things differently and let's hope they become more common because the harm that's being done to young people who are functional tools is exactly the same kind of harm we used to do to people working in factories on assembly lines with mind-bogglingly boring jobs and uh, the mere extensions of an economic impulse that the corporate corporation has and all they need to be is fully obedient and compliant there's no room for full humanity there so we, we're replicating that mistake in some corporations in the tech world even i love this conversation today between science and technology and the discussion around ethics and religion it almost takes me back to my undergraduate days, you know, studying people and, 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 and topics like Kantian ethics and Teilhard de Chardin's, you know, sort of defense of Darwin and, you know, Alfred North Whitehead about process philosophy. It's all kind of born out of the same crucible that as humankind advances, uh, there's there's got to be some kind of understanding that we share an underlying connectedness and that our actions can and do have broader implications. And in fact, I think it was Whitehead who had made the comment that there is an urgency coming to see the world as a web of interrelated processes of which we're all integrated parts or integral parts so that all of our choices and actions have consequences for the world around us. And that's the way he saw it as an ethicist. Wesley, what do you see as the most profound consequences of artificial intelligence and in, in, in what we're actually seeing unfold before our eyes today? Mm. That's a beautiful, beautiful question. When you see an elderly Japanese grandmother who never sees her grandchildren, who lives in a town where there's no one under 60 years of age, who's alone almost all of the day with an AI robot, 
an assistant that helps her live, that helps her remember what to do, that helps her with various tasks of everyday life. You realise how critically important generative AI could become. The better that bot gets at communicating, hmm. the richer that elderly woman's experience of life is going to be. I mean, this is beautiful. When you see a young kid who doesn't know how to trust another human being, but who's feeling deeply uncertain about uh, about their identity, maybe not sure about whether they even want to live anymore, if they can have an intimate relationship with an AI companion, that could be a life or death issue for that kid. There's a million things that AI can do. It can get us out of horribly boring jobs and into jobs that are more interesting. It can create more leisure time. And with more leisure time, our cultures get richer. There's a million things that it can do that's good, but there's a million things it can do that's bad too. So the the challenge for us is to appreciate the possibilities and be super, super smart about what could go wrong. And we're not very good at reading complex, dynamical social systems. We don't see very far. I mean, why do we not realise that climate change is human abetted? Because the social system, the physical system is so complicated that it's not like billiard balls hitting. This is, you know, it's a massively complicated system and the effects on one end of that system aren't automatically or easily connected to the consequences, you know? So we have real trouble understanding complex systems. And that means we're going to have great difficulty predicting what these technologies are going to do, what they're going to disrupt. Getting ready for that is so important. That means we critically need to train our young people in complex systems thinking. They need to be thinking differently about complex systems than they are at the moment. We think about teaching our kids how to think. We think that writing is the key way to do that in the last several centuries. But that is not the most important thing we need anymore. We need to understand complex systems. And for that, there are better and other kinds of learning, better kinds of tools for teaching us how to learn. And then finally, the deepest problem that long-range thinkers have with AI is the so-called problem of alignment. Uh, no one thinks about uh, conscious AI anymore the way they used to. That's mm -hmm. not a very interesting question. But the expert level of behavior and performance of AI is what's got everyone worried. Even if it's a completely dumb machine, if it can pass the Turing test and fool you, then it's smart enough. So we need to think about what we're going to do with that. And the critical issue is trying to align those machines with our wheels. Now, there's yeah. beautiful examples of this going wrong all the time, especially in the gaming industry. You tell an AI to play this game, we want you to win the game. The AI will hear that in one way, no matter how you intend it. It will exploit every single weakness in the game. It'll find all of the bugs. It'll figure out how to do subtle movements like tilt on a pinball thing pinball game that, that human beings can't do, and it will win the game. That's not what we wanted it to do. What we wanted it to do was to win the game by playing it like a human plays it. But we don't know how to say how we play. So the deep problem is it, with aligning goals between AI and human beings is that we don't know how to communicate to AIs. This is such a deep skill. People need to develop empathy with AIs. 
They need to know how to query AIs. They need to know how to give AIs instructions to make sure that we have the right kind of alignment of the AI behavior with what we want as human beings. That is a massively underappreciated and underdeveloped skill at the moment and has to become critically centrally important to everything that schooling and human beings do uh, in universities and, uh, and colleges. Now, just last thought on that. We, it's not like we can um, just force everyone to be superb at querying AIs or being empathic with them. People are going to be different in their abilities to do that. The people who can do it well will be incredibly valuable in the future. They'll be the big winners in terms of making money and, and doing things that are socially responsible and so on are very, very important. But everyone needs to learn to do it to some degree because they need to do that just to function with the intelligent machines in their environment that they, they'll be using and manipulating with their voices and their bodies and whatnot. They need to figure it out. This is the new kind of thinking that we need to get good at and our educational systems need to adapt starting now. You know, that kind of takes me, yeah, and that kind of takes me back also to another thought from from my undergrad years, where my Jesuit professors used to say that the questions are more important than the answers, and we talk about queries, you know, as we're dealing with, uh, you know, GPT and the like. As a data scientist, as a philosopher, um, you no doubt are asking lots of questions on your own about all of this. So I'd like to ask you, what are the questions we're not asking that we should be asking about generative AI? And what are the questions that keep you up at night in both good ways and bad? Hmm. Yes, well, the thing that keeps me up at night most is the problem of alignment that I just described. Mm -hmm. The problem of making super intelligent machines behave in the ways that we really want as against the ways we say we want, because there can be a big gap between what we say and what we really want. That's what um, disturbs me the most. But uh, I think the things we need to really be thinking about are the way our identity is going to change. It's very difficult for our species, this sort of, this ape that's characteristically attached to using objects to extend its cognition. Uh, we just think of ourselves in terms of those objects, in terms of a phone. I mean, three-year-olds playing on a phone, there's just going to be a part of their mentality their entire life or whatever it is. And that our identity is wrapped up with our environment, our physical environment, the objects we use all the time. So our identity in the future is going to be critically entangled with these super intelligent AIs. And what we need to do is figure out what we want to say about that, how we feel about that, how are we going to employ that, how are we going to make sure that the virtues and the values that we care about are properly expressed in our relationships with these super intelligent AIs. Learning how to manage them, yes, but doing creative things with them. There's amazing things that are going to be possible. And even now, Deep Brain AI, that company, right. is working on the digital immortality technology. So dead grandma can be present to me and I can have conversations with someone that looks like dead grandma, sounds like dead grandma, has the same types of words and phrases as dead grandma and cares about me like dead grandma. And the, 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 
the way ahead for intimate relationships in our species is so different than it was in the past. We used to have intimate relationships with pets. For example, we still do. But being able to do the same thing, not just with a pet rock, but inanimate object, but with a super intelligent communicating uh, robot or chatbot or something, this is already happening and it's going to happen more and more. Who we are will be filtered through those relationships. Wow. Well, th that's fascinating to me, but I'm not sure I want my grandma back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she was tough. She was tough. Well, listen, this is, uh, we could talk all day. Wesley, this is really fascinating. I love the discussion around uh, classroom, uh, generative AI in the classroom, and then the broader issue of alignment, which I hadn't really thought of previously. And just from this discussion, I, I have some ideas for how I might use chat GPT and other generative AI in my, in my classroom. It's, uh, it's really a fascinating subject. And the idea that you're going to have to know how to use and employ these things, both as the professor and as a student and a professional is what sinks in with me after this discussion. I, I want to make sure we let our listeners know that you have numerous um, resources um, on, on your work. Um, you can find all of that at wesleywildman.com, W-E-S-L-E-Y, Wildman, W-I-L-D-M-A-M.com. Can, can our listeners find a copy of your book on that site, Wesley? Uh, they can uh, find the book on Amazon Spirit Tech, but the, the better site to see my research is mindandculture.org. That's my research group and the uh, research center uh, that I direct here in Boston. Uh, been fun talking to you guys. You're entertaining. I'm impressed that you remember your Jesuit classes from, from way, way back there, Mike. That's impressive. I, I, I loved it. Well, you know, yeah. I have to confess, Wesley, Mike brings up his Jesuit education at Georgetown every episode. So, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> but it's entirely uh, apt here, and it was a it's a great question, and and I'm impressed as well, as well too, Mike. Um, so, Wesley, thank you for being on the Crux. Great to be with you, Gary. My my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at the Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website thecruxpodcast.org.